Welcome back to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. My name is Judd Littleton, and I'm a partner in the litigation group and co head of the firm's Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. I'm here once again with Julia Malkina, who is a partner in our litigation group and co head of our securities litigation practice, as well as Morgan Ratner, who also helps head up our Supreme Court and Appellate Practice. Today, we're continuing our series of podcast supplements to SNC's Supreme Court Business Review, which is our summary of decisions from the past term that are most relevant to businesses. Once again, you can find the Supreme Court Business Review, as well as all of our prior podcast episodes, on SNC's website at www.sulcrom.com. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Diane McGinsey, a partner in our litigation group based in Los Angeles and co-head of our labor and employment practice. We also have with us Annie Ostriger, a partner in our litigation group and co-head of our labor and employment practice based in New York. Annie and Diane are joining us today to discuss two employment arbitration cases from the past term and their implications for employers going forward. First, in Viking River Cruises versus Moriana, the Supreme Court held that the Federal Arbitration Act, or FAA, preempts a California rule insofar as it prohibits bringing certain state law claims to arbitration, and it reaffirmed that no party can be made to arbitrate a claim without expressly agreeing to do so. And second, in Southwest Airlines Co. against Saxon, the court held that certain airline workers, baggage handlers, and some of their supervisors qualify for an exemption under Section 1 of the FAA for workers involved in interstate commerce or the transportation of goods or people. Diane, can you get us started on Viking River Cruises? What was at issue in that case? Sure, Morgan. I'd be happy to. At issue was the California Private Attorney General's Act, or PAGA, which allows employees to sue their employers for violations of California's labor code and to recover damages that could only have been recovered by California's Labor and Workforce Development Agency in a state enforcement action. A central part of the case is PAGA's mechanism for resolving collective claims, which allows an aggrieved employee to bring not only her own claims, but also allows the employee to act as an agent or proxy of the state and bring her fellow employees' labor law claims in the same lawsuit. So I think a little bit of factual background might be helpful to understanding how the PAGA issue played out in this case. So could you help us out with that, Diane? Of course. So on the Viking River Cruises case, the plaintiff, Angie Moriana, who had been a sales representative for Viking River Cruises, filed a lawsuit in California State Court on behalf of herself and also as a representative of other Viking employees, asserting claims for various labor code violations. But Moriana had an employment agreement with Viking in which she had agreed to arbitrate any disputes arising out of her employment. And she also waived the right to bring any arbitration dispute as a class, collective, or representative PAGA action. So Viking moved to compel arbitration of Moriana's individual claim and moved to dismiss her representative claims for that reason. The California trial and appellate courts all denied Viking's motion based on a California Supreme Court decision from 2014 called Iskanian versus CLS Transportation, which held that a wholesale waiver of the right to bring PAGA claims in court 
rather than an arbitration was against California public policy. And it also held that PAGA claims may not be divided into individual and non-individual claims, which if they could have been divided would have theoretically made Boreana's individual PAGA claims arbitrable. Thanks for that helpful background, Diane. On what question did the U.S. Supreme Court grant certiorari here? So the U.S. Supreme Court granted cert to determine whether the Federal Arbitration Act preempts Iskanian and in fact does allow an individual to waive her right to assert PAGA claims in a representative capacity in court. The court held that Iskanian is preempted by the FAA to the extent it precludes dividing a PAGA action into individual and non-individual PAGA claims through an arbitration agreement. In reaching its decision, the court highlighted what it perceived as a conflict between PAGA's procedural structure and the FAA. So under Iskanian, agreements to arbitrate only individual PAGA claims accompanied by a waiver of an employee's right to bring representative claims were invalidated. In other words, the individual and collective claims had to proceed together. But here, the court found that PAGA's built-in mechanism of claim joinder together with Iskanian's prohibition on agreements to arbitrate individual PAGA claims, was incompatible with arbitration because it infringes parties' freedom to determine the scope of the issues that are subject to arbitration, and thereby violating the fundamental principle that arbitration is a matter of consent. So basically, the problem with Iskanian is that it held both that individual and collective PAGA claims can't be separated and that the right to bring collective PAGA claims in court cannot be waived. Is that right? That's right. Because representative PAGA claims cannot be brought in arbitration without all parties' consent, and Iskanian prohibits parties from dividing PAGA claims into individual and representative claims, the court concluded that Iskanian effectively coerces parties to opt for a judicial forum rather than arbitration, which is incompatible with the FAA. The court therefore invalidated Iskanian's prohibition on separating individual PAGA claims from representative PAGA claims, allowing Viking to compel arbitration of Moriana's individual PAGA claims separately from her representative claims. And so then what happened to Moriana's representative PAGA claims? So the court then concluded that as a matter of California law, Moriana's representative PAGA claims couldn't survive in court because PAGA has a rule that a plaintiff can only assert non-individual claims in an action where the plaintiff is also asserting individual claims. So in other words, because PAGA requires an individual cause of action as a prerequisite to bringing representative claims, the court concluded that after the individual claims were compelled to arbitration, the correct course was to dismiss Mariana's remaining representative claims. What are some implications of the court's decision? Does it raise issues we should watch out for in the future? Well, the court's opinion raises obvious questions about the broader viability of representative PAGA claims. But I should note that in a brief concurrence, Justice Sotomayor pointed out that because the court's conclusion that a plaintiff must be able to bring an individual PAGA claim in court in order to also bring a representative PAGA claim was based on an interpretation of California law, California courts would have the last word on whether that interpretation is correct. She also noted that the California legislature could always amend PAGA's standing requirements so that they no longer leave employees subject to mandatory arbitration agreements without any forum to bring representative PAGA claims. 
Well, it certainly sounds like we may not have heard the last about conflicts between PAGA and similar laws and the FAA. What can businesses take away from this decision? While there could be more litigation in the future, this decision falls directly in line with the Supreme Court's repeated holdings that a court may invalidate an arbitration agreement based on generally applicable contract defenses, but not legal rules that apply only to arbitration, and also that class arbitration may not proceed without all parties' consent. But with respect to PAGA claims specifically, California employers may be able to effectively prevent representative PAGA claims by requiring employees to agree to individual arbitration of PAGA claims, which would leave them without standing to bring representative PAGA claims in court. Still, employers should be mindful that this decision does not put an end to representative PAGA suits for employees not subject to such mandatory arbitration clauses who can still bring individual and representative PAGA claims in court. And again, as Justice Sotomayor noted in her concurrence, California may reinterpret or amend PAGA to allow employees who have agreed to individual arbitration to nevertheless bring representative claims in court. Terrific. Thanks very much, Diane. Let's turn now to Southwest Airlines versus Saxon and the FAA's transportation worker exemption. Annie, can you give us a little background for the case? Thanks, Julia. I'd be happy to. In that case, Latrice Saxon was a ramp supervisor for Southwest Airlines who trained and supervised the ramp agents responsible for physically loading and unloading aircraft cargo. Like many other ramp supervisors, Saxon also frequently loaded and unloaded cargo alongside the ramp agents. Saxon brought a putative class action under the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 against Southwest, seeking to recover overtime wages, which Southwest allegedly failed to pay ramp supervisors. Southwest moved to dismiss Saxon's suit, invoking Section 2 of the FAA to enforce the arbitration agreement in Saxon's employment agreement, which required her to arbitrate her disputes individually. In response, Saxon invoked Section 1's exemption for contracts of employment of seamen, railroad employees, or any other class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. Saxon argued that like seamen and railroad employees, ramp supervisors are an exempt class of workers engaged in foreign or interstate commerce. It's interesting. So Saxon's argument was that even employees who do not physically travel across state lines like seamen or sailors or railroad employees, they nonetheless fit under this exemption? That's right, Judd. But the district court sided with Southwest, holding that only those workers involved in actual transportation fell within Section 1's exemption. The Seventh Circuit then reversed, ruling that the act of loading cargo onto a vehicle to be transported interstate is itself commerce, as that term was understood at the time of the FAA's enactment in 1925. What did the Supreme Court hold on that issue? The Supreme Court held that the ordinary meaning of the term class of workers is determined by reference to the workers' performance of work rather than by the employer's industry. The court reasoned that the FAA's reference to workers as opposed to employees 
indicates that the class is defined by the individual worker's actual job duties rather than her employment category. The court also observed that the ordinary meaning of engaged in commerce includes involvement in the transportation of goods and concluded that any class of workers directly involved in transporting goods across state or international borders falls within section one's exemption. So the court held that airline employees who physically load and unload cargo on and off of planes traveling in interstate commerce are, as a practical matter, part of the interstate transportation of goods. So that sounds to me like a fairly broad reading of the exemption, no? Yes, true. But the court also rejected Saxon's definition of the relevant class of transportation workers as all airline employees who carry out the customary work of that airline. Basically, because the term seaman in the list of exempted workers constitutes a subset of workers engaged in the maritime shipping industry, the exempted groups under Section 1 cannot include all transportation workers merely on the basis of the industry in which they work. That said, the court also rejected Southwest's definition of the relevant class as only those workers who physically move goods or people across foreign or international boundaries. Annie, are there any interesting issues that we should continue to follow that the Supreme Court did not address? The court declined to address whether supervision of cargo loading alone would suffice to exempt a class of workers under Section 1 because Southwest did not actually contest that ramp supervisors like Saxon frequently load and unload cargo. The court did note that future cases might not be so easy and declined to resolve the application of Section 1 to other workers like Amazon last mile delivery drivers and Grubhub food delivery drivers whose duties are further removed from the channels of interstate commerce or the actual crossing of borders. So what do you think the Saxon decision means for businesses? In the first instance, it means that employers can't invoke the FAA to prevent airline cargo loaders from litigating their employment disputes. Beyond that, employers should consider whether their employees as individual workers are engaged in commerce or the transportation of goods across state lines. It may also be prudent for employers to consider updating arbitration agreements to provide for application of a state arbitration statute should the FAA not apply, as the court's ruling does not preclude a court from enforcing an arbitration agreement under state law. Thank you very much, Diane and Annie, for joining us today. What a helpful and interesting episode. Thank you for listening to our Supreme Court Business Review podcast series. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.solcrom.com. Mm-hmm.